How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you are in right relationship with God, walking by the Spirit, which means opportunity to confess your sin, to make sure that you're in fellowship. So let's let's pray. Father, it's a great privilege we have to come together to study your word. It's a great privilege we have your word, that we have it in our language. We have an abundance of translations that, for the most part, are pretty good and can give us a pretty good insight into your plan and purpose for history and your plan of salvation. Father, as we study your word, we recognize that you, as the creator of all things, both the physical as well as the social and spiritual, have established certain laws, certain absolutes that run true within your creation, even within a fallen creation, and that when we live in accordance with those uh, principles, then we have uh, live in harmony with them, then we can uh, be blessed and we can experience uh, success in life. When we're doing it by the Holy Spirit, then we have uh, that which is produced in our life has eternal value. Father, we pray as we study your word tonight, as we focus on what you have uh, revealed in the Old Testament, that here you have uh, numerous principles that are laid out with reference to government, with reference to uh, how uh, political leadership should uh, conduct itself. And we learn from the scripture negatives as well as positives, and we learn to think uh, in terms of your word, and as believers, we are not to just form opinions about uh, government based upon experience, but we are to ground it first and foremost in your word and then let that inform our decision-making. So tonight, as we uh, study more in First Samuel, pray that you guide and direct our thinking. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're at a position between 1 Samuel 3 and 1 Samuel 4, where there's a time gap. As we've gone through our study of 1 Samuel 1 through 3, what we have seen is a focus on the family of Elkanah, uh, of Hannah, his wife, who's unable to have children, and God is using that negative circumstance to bring her to a point in her life where she has to depend exclusively upon uh, him uh, in order to solve the problem in her life. And we've studied how she went to the temple, how she vowed a vow to God that she would give her her son, if he would, God would give her a son, that she would give him back to the Lord to serve him. And God is using that to change Israel. God has given them grace, but they have refused that. They've been in disobedience. We've seen that this is part of that horrid period in Israel's history, uh, the period of the judges, where Israel had lived more like a sort of a fifth world pagan nation than they did the chosen people of God. 
They were uh, mired in idolatry and moral relativism. Uh, the culture was characterized by uh, gross sexual sin. It was characterized by abuse of women. It was characterized by a priesthood that had become increasingly corrupt by leaders, by political leaders that had become increasingly corrupt, all because they were ignorant, willingly ignorant of the Torah. And they were willingly disobedient uh, to the Word of God. And the result is that that failure to understand the truth of God's Word led to a moral collapse, which led to an economic and a political collapse. And I think that's important to stress today because there are some in the political spectrum in our country who think that you can divorce morality from economics and politics. And usually they go by the name of libertarians. Just focus on economics, just focus on politics, and don't worry about the social issues. Don't worry about same-sex marriage. Don't worry about abortion. Don't worry about these other areas. Just focus on economics and politics. But the Word of God says that all of his creation is is interrelated. You can't do something uh, that's in the spiritual realm that doesn't have economic and perhaps physical consequences. And you can't do something in the physical realm that doesn't have uh, negative consequences in the spiritual realm. These, these, all these areas intersect. We don't live in a world where these are compartmentalized from each other. And we see this under the Torah, under the Old Testament law that God said, if you're obedient to me, I will bless you. I will bring the rains in their season. In other words, spiritual obedience is going to have a meteorological impact. On the other hand, spiritual disobedience, God says he's going to make the uh, ground dry up and the earth and the uh, sky is going to be like bronze. It's going to be hot. It's going to be dry. There's going to be a drought. There's going to be famine. And what you see is that spiritual rebellion has economic consequences. The same thing is true in our society. When we look at the economic consequences that come as a result of divorce, that come as a result of sexual immorality, that come as a result of of uh, what happens when men in a, a society and young boys in a society become addicted to pornography and the impact that has economically on on a marriage and the, uh, and on and when the marriage breaks up on the family the impact that it has on the children uh, we can't separate morality from and spirituality from the more physical areas of economics or uh, legislation things of that nature so you can't come along and make those kinds of bifurcations if you're a Christian and you're living in a world that you believe to be created by God where everything intersects and everything is is interrelated and so when we come to the Bible we see that God gives us instruction in every area of his creation he created not only the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them, all the animals, uh, all of the vegetation. Uh, he created all of that, but he also created certain social absolutes that if they're followed, then it leads to success, leads to protection of a culture, the preservation of the culture, the perpetuation of the culture, such as uh, personal responsibility, 
marriage and family, as we've seen, and as well as government and nations. And when those are violated, and when those things break down, then a culture breaks down. So we see what is going on here, just in terms of sort of a, a summary, is that that Israel is going to be soundly defeated uh, in this this battle. They're going to lose. Uh, it's, there's actually two parts to the battle at Aphek, and they're going to lose about 34,000. And they're going to have about 34,000 killed. And this is a devastating, uh, devastating defeat, but it also leads to their uh, virtual domination by the Philistines for approximately 20 years. So it's a great lesson in how a nation, what leads to that loss of freedom and what leads to the recovery of that freedom as we work our way through the history of that century. It's going to take time. It, it, it didn't fall apart overnight, and it isn't brought back over, overnight. So we're going to learn some things about the essence of true freedom, and by that I mean that it's not, not just physical, political, economic freedom, but it is fundamentally a spiritual freedom. If we are not free spiritually in terms of our uh, obedience to God versus uh, being dominated by our sin nature, then we can't have genuine, true uh, political or, or economic freedom. So when we come to the end of chapter 3, which I did last week, remember, this is uh, the episode where Sam, Samuel is sleeping in the temple, and we see a picture of, of, uh, of Eli, who is not in the temple, but Eli is pretty old at this point, and he is pushing 90, late 80s at least. And according to Leviticus, uh, he should have retired at the age of 50. Priests were not supposed to uh, serve beyond the age of, of 50. And so we see, again, just all the breakdowns in the protocols for the service of, of the priesthood and how he is and his sons are uh, uh, abusing it. So Samuel sleeping, and three times God calls him. He runs to Eli, thinking it's Eli. Finally, Eli says, hmm, it's not me. must be God, and tells him that God is speaking to him. And God revealed to Samuel, as he had revealed to this unnamed prophet at the end of chapter 2, that he is going to destroy the dynasty of Eli. He's going to bring judgment upon the house of Eli so that never again will they serve as high priest and they, that, that eventually the line is going to die out from having an active role uh, in, in the priesthood. And we see Samuel as being somewhat young at that particular time. He's probably 10 or 11. Some time goes by before we have the battle that occurs in chapter 4. So what I want to do is just sort of pause here for a minute and reflect upon some of the issues that we need to be paying attention to as we go through Samuel, as we think about this period of Israel's history. So basically a three-part introduction and review for us before we uh, at least uh, begin to scratch the surface of the beginning of, of uh, chapter 4. Let's just look at the outline. And the outline, basic outline, working on a printout, once I get all of chapter 7, uh, the first seven chapters rather done the way I like them, then I'll uh, uh, put that out so you can follow along. I'm trying to 
pull this pull this together. The first seven chapters we see that Yahweh is working to graciously provide a shift, a change in in Israel. They are as low as they've ever been, as apostate as they've ever been, as degraded as they've ever been, but there's still a remnant. You have examples of Elkanah and Hannah. You also have an example of that unnamed man of God, uh, the unnamed prophet that that uh, God sends to uh, Eli in, at the end of chapter 2. So there is a remnant, a small core of believers. And God is going to graciously change the direction of Israel, and it's going to take time. And he does that first and foremost through the birth of Samuel. He causes Samuel to be born in response to uh, Hannah's prayer in chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 10. And then in the next major section, we're going to see how Yahweh orchestrates the collapse of this old apostate order, the house of Eli, the priesthood of Eli and his sons. And we saw that uh, there's a first announcement to, to judge that old order given by the man, unnamed man of God in 1 Samuel 2, 11 uh, to 3, 6. And then as we see that in chapter 3, last time we saw how uh, Yahweh is going to call the first prophet of the new order. Now, this is important. There's a pattern that we see here. God is going to change things because he's going to uh, bring a king to Israel. But we need to pay attention to how God does that. He doesn't just plop that king there because they're not ready for it. They're, they're, uh, they're, they're in apostasy. They're self-centered. They're in rebellion against God. And if he had brought David on the scene right now, they would not have had the capacity to appreciate David for his spiritual focus, for his integrity, and for his ability to lead the nation. So God has to uh, conduct some corrective action uh, for, uh, for the, against the culture of Israel before they're going to be ready for David. Now, this is roughly... Uh, roughly, let's say around, at this point, it's around 10, it's around 1100 to 1080, somewhere right in there. We're not sure exactly what those dates are, but it's somewhere during that time period. It's going to be 80, 80 years, 70 to 80 years before David becomes the king. Now, uh, that, that gives you a lot of hope that you may not see that, right, in your generation. It takes time to change course, but the focus has to, for believers always has to be on the hope that God gives us. So he's going to call, first he's got to call a prophet, a prophet that is following him, that is going to be, have national leadership qualities. And that's, that's, that's uh, Samuel, because Samuel is not only prophet, but he's also going to be the priest, and he's going, he's going to be the a judge of Israel. So this it means he is the most significant figure uh, during this period of time. But he's going to be the one who anoints the king. So there's a pattern here that the prophet comes first and then the king. 
And you see this all the way through the Old Testament, that the prophet is the one who anoints the king, and it is the prophet John the Baptist who precedes and, uh, as it were, anoints Jesus the Messiah at his baptism. And the point that is illustrated here is that the king is not out from under the law. He is under the authority of God, and his appointment comes uh, from God. He is not on his own. He doesn't. He's not self self appointed or just appointed by the people. That's what happened when when the men of Shechem, over in Judges nine, uh, anointed uh, Abimelech as the king of Israel, and he reigned over Israel. The text says for two years. But God had absolutely nothing to do with it. He was just a, a human viewpoint solution, a human attempt to solve their problems totally apart from God, and it ended up in failure. And last time as we looked at this, we saw that uh, God brought uh, Samuel through a training process under an apostate priest. And that is something that should expand your understanding of living in an apostate culture, that God can still bring about his desired ends, even though the leadership, the authority structure, is apostate and corrupt. And uh, Samuel learned under Eli. And then in chapter 3, 11 to 18, we saw that Yahweh called Samuel to begin his prophetic ministry, and then he validated Samuel's uh, prophetic ministry so that the people recognized in the end of the chapter, they're talking about how uh, how wonderful Samuel is and that his fame is spreading throughout uh, throughout all of Israel. So this is all under this category of God providing uh, preparing deliverance for Israel, and he's going to collapse the old order. Now when we get to chapter 4, Yahweh is going to cause Israel to be defeated. And this is critical in how God is going to prepare them for what he's going to bless them with later on. And that happens sometimes in our individual lives, lives where God has to take us through a defeat in order to get us to quit relying upon ourselves, in order to quit relying upon our own capabilities and sufficiency, and to learn to completely and totally trust God uh, to provide the solution. So he causes Israel to be defeated, and they are just devastated. And one of the reasons they're devastated is that God allows his presence to be captured by the Philistines. The corrupt Philistines are going to capture God, and they're going to haul Yahweh off and put him in a pagan temple. And then we have one of the most humorous episodes that I think is in all of the Scripture when we get into the, uh, get into the uh, fifth chapter. He causes Israel to be defeated and allows the ark to be captured to demonstrate his sovereignty over the enemies of Israel and their gods. Now, you would think that just the opposite is what's happening, that the Philistines have defeated Israel, so that means their gods are greater. But what God's going to do is turn the tables on the Philistines and demonstrate that he's sovereign even over the enemies of Israel, he's still sovereign even when they're in defeat and in despair. God is still in control. It's necessary to do this, uh, second, to cleanse Israel of the corruption of the priesthood. They have allowed sin in their culture to go unchecked. And so there has to be a divine judgment and discipline 
in order to bring cleansing to the nation and to get rid of that that leaven that has corrupted the whole the whole loaf of Israel as it were so uh, that corruption has to be cleaned out and in the process he's teaching them to trust in him alone so God multitasks in this he's got to teach them that he's sovereign over their enemies and over their gods of their enemies he's got to cleanse the nation from this stench, this corruption of the house of Eli, and he's got to teach Israel to trust in him alone. So that that gives us an understanding of where we're headed in the fourth chapter. Now that's that's just the first part of the introduction. The second part of the introduction is to sort of review our overview of what's happening historically here because we can get microscopic to the details that are going on, but we have to see the flow of events that are that are taking place. And we're looking at the seven chapters in 1 Samuel where God is preparing to graciously deliver Israel from their own bad decisions, from their own rebellion, from their own idolatry, from their own sinfulness. And God's going to bring about a great change, but we have to look at the dynamics. How does God work to bring about this kind of change, and what are the different elements of that? And part of that involves judging the old order, cleansing it, and bringing uh, Israel to a point of humility, and that doesn't always happen. It's not just a clean, uh, straight event. We're going to see that, that in fact, Israel uh, somewhat is somewhat obedient under Samuel, but at the end of Samuel's uh, judgeship, as, as Samuel is old, the elders of Israel are going to come to him and say, we, we don't want your sons. They're, they're pretty corrupt. We don't want them, and, and there's nobody else. Now, notice they're not seeking God's counsel. And they said, we want to have a king like everybody else. And they think the solution to their problem is having a king like all of the other nations. And so what God is going to do is to show them that that when they want to have a king like all of the other nations, they want to have a king after their own heart, and that's going to lead to failure. And then God is going to bring in a king after God's own heart. And so he has to prepare them still to appreciate David. Otherwise, uh, in their rebellion, they would not. And that blessing of a godly king would just lead them to, uh, to further, further disaster. So this, uh, these first seven chapters is really the, the prologue to the, to the book, which, uh, to the event of Sam, uh, of Saul's identification and Saul's anointing. We are reminded that it was always God's plan for there to be a monarchy, for there to be a king over Israel. This isn't something that that was a, a second thought on the part of God. We'll see this in a minute. We'll go to Deuteronomy. But it was God's plan for them to have a king, but it was the kind of king God wanted on God's terms, not a king that... Uh, on, on their terms, it was going to be like everybody else's king. So often what we see personally is we want to solve problems like everybody else is solving problems. And in problem solving, when we face a crisis in life, one of the first things we tend to do out of our sin nature is to dr- just devise our own solution. We generate our own solution. This is what I think will work. We don't consult the Word of God if we're carnal. We don't go to the Lord in prayer. We just come up with a with our own idea of what will work. 
Next thing that happens is that we look to what other people are doing, what seems to have success, what do people in the world do when they face this problem. One example of this is, let's say, somebody who has a problem with addiction. If you have a problem with addiction, then one of the first things that people do is let's go to a 12-step program. Let's go to AA or let's go to whatever it is, Anonymous, uh, Eaters Anonymous or Drug Addicts Anonymous or whatever it is. And very few people take the time to analyze those particular programs. And they're not very successful. I remember uh, I was so surprised about, uh, I guess it was about 17, 16, 17 years ago, when I was pastoring at uh, Preston City Bible Church, watching Good Morning America, there's a great uh, cultural uh, analysis program for you. And they were celebrating at this particular time, this, I think it was the 75th, either the 50th or the 75th anniversary of, of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was just stunned when they actually admitted over the air, if my memory serves me, that the success rate of AA was only 17%. And I immediately thought, well, that's that. It's probably that good or better from people who just try to quit on their own and eventually uh, decide to solve the problem on their own, or they go to church and they get with the Word and they, uh, God, the Holy Spirit gives them the strength and the ability to deal with the problems in in their life. And recently, this came up in conversation with some other pastors, and I went back to to check my figures. And I ran across a couple, two or three insightful articles in studies that have been conducted since then. One of them said uh, that, that uh, according to AA's own sources, that they have a success rate of about 30%, which I still don't think is very good. And the other, it was an independent study that was commissioned by, I can't remember who the group was now, university. And it was uh, they came up with the fact that they had a 7 to 10% success rate. Now, if if anybody is struggling in areas where they think that this is sort of the default solution, because I hear Christians say this all the time. In fact, I have a, a pastor a friend that asked me about this not long ago because someone in their congregation knew someone, had a friend that had a problem with, with alcohol, and that was their default solution. And, and so often what, what we find Christians and pastors do is they, they have a sense of helplessness and so that seems to be what the culture finds success in. So let's get them into a 12-step program. And if you want to investigate that a little bit and maybe get another side of the story, there's a book by Martin Bobgan, who was a speaker here at the Chafer Conference back in, I think it was 2007 or 2008. And he has a book out called, so it, it has to do with 12-step. It's like the, the 12 Steps to Destruction, something like that. It's 12 Steps to Spiritual Destruction. And he had some very good uh, facts and material in there on the problems with these uh, these types of, of programs. But we have to understand if we are believers, if we believe that the Word of God is sufficient and the grace of God is sufficient and the omnipotence of God is sufficient, then God can solve our problems. There's no problem we face. There's no addiction we face. There's no problem, no difficulty that God can't solve through His Word 
applying the Word of God through the Spirit of God to address the problems that we have in, in life. And we all have problems. We all have uh, baggage from our sin nature, whether it's sins that we committed before we were saved or sins that we committed after we were saved. Everybody has, has that kind of baggage. But we have genuine forgiveness at the cross. We have genuine forgiveness when uh, we confess our sins. And we have the power of God, the Holy Spirit, and the Word of God. But the issue is, are we really willing to trust? Are we willing to follow the example of Peter walking on the water and just focus every bit of our of our mind on the Word of God, on the living Word of God to, to solve our problems? So one of the things we see in this particular section, again, is how Israel fails to truly uh, truly trust, radically trust in the power of God, and they continue to attempt to solve their problems uh, through their uh, through their own uh, efforts. The basic problem that we all face, and that mankind has faced since Adam ate the fruit in the Garden of Eden, is what? It's sin, and sin has consequences. Sin reverberates through the uh, physical areas of our life, and it reverberates through the through various economic problems, political problems, military problems, technology problems. And, and as we go through life, as we look at these problems that develop in our life, we look to some sort of solution. We think, well, what does the Word of God have to say about solving a technology problem? Or what does the Word of God have to say about, about drug addiction? I can't find that in my concordance. And the reality is, is that, uh, when we encounter difficulty in life, what we're rubbing up against is a surface problem. Whether it's addiction, whether it has to do with sexual identity, whether it has to do with just genuine problems of our sin nature, we're deceptive or we have power lust or we are uh, totally self-centered and arrogant, whatever it is, the, the surface problem is just that. That's, that's where we encounter it. And, but what lies behind that are, are more spiritual issues that can only be resolved by dealing with the root problem behind every one of these, and that is our sin nature. Uh, as one of the old uh, uh, Pogo uh, comic strips says, Pogo says, we've met the enemy and he is us. And, and that's our problem. It's our that internal enemy uh, of the sin nature. So when we take this to a national level, and we're looking at the problems that any nation faces, whether we're talking about ancient Israel, talking about modern Israel, we're talking about uh, modern America. When we look at the, the problems that we face, fundamentally we have to dig beneath the surface and realize that the issues are always spiritual. We can address certain things at a superficial level, but unless we deal with the underlying causes then we're never going to have real success. We'll just put Band-Aids on a lot of problems. Now, there's nothing wrong with putting a Band-Aid on a problem. But if that's all we do, then we're not going to get very far. You put a Band-Aid on the problem, that keeps it clean, keeps dirt from getting in, keeps the problem maybe from getting worse, but you have to address the underlying causes and the underlying problems, which always has to do 
always has to do with with sin. Now, when we look at what's going on, when we analyze this trends that's happening in in um, in, in uh, Israel at this particular time, we we see that they are in a downward spiral that if it weren't for the grace of God, they would have just imploded. But God is going to be true to his promise. Now, we don't have a covenant promise in the U.S. like they did. There's no covenant promise to uh, Britain. There's no covenant promise to Australia or to China or Russia or any other nation. The only nation that's got a covenant promise of God's protection is, is Israel. And so God has to be true to that promise to preserve them as a nation in order to bring about uh, his plan of salvation. So as we look at this and go forward, uh, we have to recognize that, that first of all, that what underlies the, the political dynamics and the cultural dynamics is the failure to trust in the word of God. We have to have a high view of scripture. And by that I mean a radical view that this tells us exactly how we are to think and exactly how we are to live, that this is God's revelation to us, the God who made everything, and he's the one who designed everything to work the way it works. And so the Word of God is going to provide us with a framework for understanding every area of human intellection, There's no academic discipline that is outside of the authority of God's Word. You can't go to music. You can't go to art. You can't go to political science. You can't go to history. You can't go to literature and say this is an area that isn't addressed by the Word of God. We have to understand that God's Word addresses every area. And second thing, if God decreed and instituted national entities and human government, then he is the one who has the right to inform us as to how government and society should function. He addresses all of these areas. Now, in American history, the early American colonists that came over that were fleeing religious oppression in England and fleeing religious oppression in on the continent came here so that they could study the Word of God and apply it to every area of their their life. You go back and you read those Puritan theologians and Puritan thinkers, and they were thinking profoundly about what the Bible said. They were going back to the Old Testament and looking at what the Bible said about what made a culture, a society successful, what made it work, what did the Bible say about the role of government? What could we learn from the Mosaic Law about how a nation uh, was was to operate? And there have been numerous studies done, uh, one done by um, uh, a professor over at the University of Houston who uh, he and his students devised a program to analyze the, the letters, the uh, speeches, and the diaries of the founding fathers of America discovered that that the largest number of quotations, the guy's name is Donald Luntz, I think it was Luntz or Lunsford, uh, that the highest number of quotations came from the Bible. And it was almost twice as many allusions and quotations came from the Bible as came from the number two source that was John Locke. So the primary influence upon the founding fathers was the Bible. 
and they thought within a biblical framework. That doesn't mean they were all Christians, but they operated within a a Judeo-Christian worldview, and they believed that the Bible gave good information, necessary information for how a culture was supposed to live. And they understood what we've organized as the divine institutions, individual responsibility. Every person is responsible to God. When the government steps in, the government is the one who says, we're going to assume responsibility for people's future. We're going to assume responsibility for their welfare. We assume responsibility for their success or failure in life. That's a violation of individual responsibility. Marriage. Marriage is to be between a man and a woman who are designed both physically and in terms of their soul to merge together in a unity to fulfill God's plan and purpose for their life. Family is the outgrowth of that. It's the production of marriage, and marriage is the training center for the family. That is a primary mission given to parents is to train and equip their children to be successful, godly adults. And all of those were were given before the fall, before there was sin uh, in in human history, and were designed to, to enable man to fulfill God's intent uh, for their uh, for their life. After the fall, you have two divine institutions: the divine institution of government established in the Noahic covenant, and the divine institution of nations. And these were designed to restrain evil. So the first three are designed to promote productivity and to advance civilization so that if you don't honor those, then your civilization is going to deteriorate, order is going to fall apart into chaos, and you will become less productive and less civilized. Just watch the news one night. We are becoming less productive and less civilized as each year goes by. The post-fall, we recognize that government's role is to restrain evil, primarily to provide justice, and national identity. And We live in a world today where the vast majority of the intelligentsia, the academics in universities, no longer believe in borders, the significance of keeping a nation safe and secure as an autonomous nation and to provide for protection of the borders. And, of course, this is going to be a major issue, and already is, in the presidential campaign for the next election because there are those in this country who just want open borders and want to let anybody in without enforcing any laws. And that's what we've seen on both sides of the aisle for the last 20 or 30 years, ever since the last amnesty that we were promised was going to be the last amnesty uh, that that came under President Reagan. So we have to understand the these uh, these distinctions that as a Christian, this is what uh, we we base things on. So uh, in American history, they understood this. They went back. They understood that um, that the Bible had to be the foundation. What's interesting is the enlightenment from Europe doesn't really have its impact here. It's impacted a few people. It's impacted Jefferson, Franklin, a few others to a small degree. But it doesn't have its its major impact until after 1800. And we see the outworking of Enlightenment think, thinking, which makes rationalism and empiricism 
uh, more authoritative than the Word of God, than the Bible. That shifts culture. We move into modernism starting in 1800. Some people have put it at, at 1815 with the defeat of Napoleon at Waterloo, but it's in the beginning of that century that this worldview starts to shift to what is now called uh, called modernism. And so that lays the foundation for the breakdown because modernism starts to fall apart by the early 19th century, I mean early 20th century, and that lays the groundwork for postmodernism. And postmodernism just totally uh, causes a nation to totally disintegrate. So we see something like that because at the root of postmodernism is the idea that there are no absolutes, pure moral relativism. That's what's going on in Israel at this time. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. And once you get away from any sort of moral foundation that unifies a culture, it's just going to disintegrate and fragment, uh, which is what we see here. Now, in the third part of this introduction to chapter 4, we have to look at some background in the Scripture. We have to pay attention to the time frame that's going on here. And because judges, I pointed this out before in the, in our introduction to Samuel, because judges is separated from Samuel by that little book called Ruth. When we start reading in 1 Samuel, we are dis- disconnected from what's happening during the period of the judges, especially the end of the judges. So I have created this slide to give us an understanding of the, uh, of the, the, chronology, what's going on here. And at the top we see Jephthah, who's a judge who compromised. He makes a bargain with God after God's already promised to give him the victory. He says, if uh, whatever comes out of the door of my house to, to greet me when I come home, I'll offer as a burnt offering. And then when he had victory over the Ammonites, he came home, his daughter ran out, and the Scripture says he did unto her as he vowed. Now some people try to get around the harshness of that, but usually such people don't recognize that the book of the Judges is not real positive. It doesn't present the leaders in the best light. It's showing how they've been corrupted by the moral relativism of the paganism of their time. So we see that with Jephthah, and he operates until about 1100, and this is about the time that Samuel is born. Uh, Samson and Samuel uh, lives overlap a lot. It's very interesting how close their lives are. And so what's going on in the, these first four chapters of Judges is happening at the same time that Samson is causing trouble. Samson begins his, uh, his whole uh, judgeship where he's just causing trouble and disrupting the relations between the Jews and the Philistines at about the same time that 1 Samuel 1 begins. So if you think about uh, Judges uh, 17, or, or Judges 13, 14, 15, and 16 is happening at the same time as the first four chapters of Samuel, then you'll get an idea. This is how corrupt uh, Israel has become at that particular time. So what we see here is it's uh, Samson is born about 1123, and if he's, uh, let's say he's 16 or 17 years old, 18 years old when he begins his escapades 
then he would be, that would make it around 1106 or 1105. This is roughly the time the Ammonite oppression ends uh, right here. And it's just a couple of years before the Battle of Aphek in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Now, the reason I point that out is because when we end chapter 3, then when we start in chapter 4, it just starts with the, with the Philistines gathering to do battle against Israel. Well, why are they gathering to do battle against Israel? Well, the text in Samuel doesn't tell us, but if we put these things together, it's probably because of all the chaos that, that Samson has been uh, involved with over, over this period of time. So the Battle of Aphek is dated about 1104. This would mean that, that uh, Samuel would be about 10 years of age or so, so that means he would be born about maybe 1115 or something like that. Uh, wouldn't be here. I was. Cha- I thought I changed that back. That should be 1115, not 1105. Um, so he would be about 10 or 11 years of age uh, at the time of the Battle of Aphek. And you see down here at the bottom, I've enlarged these two panels. The Battle of Aphek is in 1104, and it's 1084, 20 years later, before Israel roundly defeats the Philistines at the Battle of Mizpah, which is in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 11. So when we draw this, this vertical line here is to show that basic time period of 1104, that this is when uh, things are really stirred up, and we're at some of the worst times in Israel's history. Samson was raised up during this time basically to be a professional troublemaker. He doesn't do anything good until right at the end. He's he's totally controlled by his emotions, by his lust patterns. He's very selfish. He's very self-centered. He is a womanizer. He's one of the greatest womanizers in all of the Scripture, and he's extremely self-centered. And nothing good is really said about him till we get to the to the very end. So he's used, he's being used by God to constantly stir up trouble uh, with the with the uh, Philistines. And the reason for that is that there is a trend uh, in the Jewish mentality to assimilate to the cultures around them, not to be uh, remain distinct. We s- saw that back in uh, Genesis chapter thirty-five to thirty-eight, when uh, Jacob's twelve sons are all. Uh, intermarrying with the Canaanites. And so that's one reason God brought a famine into the land, had uh, Joseph taken out to Egypt and raised to a position of of power, and then a famine came into the land, and uh, Jacob and the rest of the family had to go to Egypt. This took them out of Canaan, put them in an environment where they were uh, really despised by the Egyptians. The Egyptians were were racist to the max, and they just despised the Semites. So they weren't going to intermarry or have affairs or anything with a Jew. 
they would never even think about that. So they isolated the Jews in Goshen, and that allowed them to to con- grow and develop as a nation without falling prey to assimilation. Uh, this same trend towards assimilation uh, was seen again during the period of uh, in the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom leading up to the fifth cycle of discipline in both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And it happened again recently in history in the 19th century. Up until the 19th century, Jews really lived in isolation from the culture around them. Because of anti-Semitism, many of the uh, of the cities and the towns where they lived isolated them into various uh, ghettos. And so they were protected. In Russia, they were isolated into what is called the Pale of Settlement, which is the area between Russia and Poland, and basically included parts of eastern Poland, uh, Belarus, and and Ukraine were part of the Pale of Settlement. But once the Halaska, which is called, which is the name for the Jewish Enlightenment, came in in the late uh, 1700s and through the 1880s. Jews began to they uh, uh, reform Judaism had come on the scene so they could reject orthodoxy they became much more liberal in their religious beliefs they could just forget everything that they had been taught about Moses because they didn't understand it anyway and then they were allowed under a couple of the Tsars to leave the pale and to begin to develop so they were becoming more educated and they were beginning to assimilate and this happened in, in, in Europe it happened in Germany it happened in France. In fact, a lot of Jews thought that they had completely disappeared into the culture by the late uh, 1800s. And one of those uh, that thought that was a French uh, uh, army captain by the name of uh, Alfred Dreyfus. And he was put on trial uh, for treason. It wasn't true. The charges were trumped up. But they were trumped up against him because he was a Jew. And... um, um, one of the uh, men who came to observe and to report on the um, uh, was uh, to report on the trial was Theodore Herzl, and Herzl, who was an assimilated Jew, witnessed the anti-Semitism that was going on in the trial against Dreyfus, and he said, "There's no hope." For us to assimilate, we cannot be Germans or we can't be English, we can't be French, we can't be Austrians, we're Jews, and that's all we can be, and we need to go back and get the land, and thus was born modern Jewish Zionism in the 18, uh, in the 1890s, and he held the first international uh, Zionist convention at that time in order to formulate a plan so that Jews could return to their historic homeland and eventually establish a, a, a Jew, Jewish nation. Now, all of that just to illustrate that their trend has always been to assimilation, but, but the anti-Semitism that arose in Europe in the late 19th century, in Russia especially, and then in the 20th century in Germany, uh, pretty much ended that. The Holocaust ended the idea that Jews could just assimilate. Of course, a lot of the Jews in America, the more liberal Jews, uh, really haven't gotten that point yet. They can't assimilate. Why can't they assimilate? God's not going to let them because God has a plan and and a purpose for them. So God used Samson to stir up trouble, and that is what creates his background. So the Philistines are now engaged in going to be engaged in battle uh, against 
against Israel. Now, those are three points of introduction, and I haven't even gotten to the main part yet. And that comes in Deuteronomy chapter 17. And this, uh, this will be the last thing I talk about uh, tonight. This is the foundation for understanding the role of political leadership in Israel. And there are certain principles that we can extrapolate from this uh, for today. In Deuteronomy 17, Moses is addressing the, the conquest generation before they cross into the land, and he tells them what the guidelines are for a king. This tells us that God always envisioned a king for Israel. This wasn't something that was that just sort of came along at the at the last minute. Moses said, "When you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, and possess it, and dwell in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me." Now that's prophetic. That's what happens in 1 Samuel 8. They come to Samuel and they say, we want to have a king like all the nations around us. And so Moses predicted that, prophesied that. You'll come and say, I want a king like all the other nations. What God says in verse 15 is, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. You can't just get anybody. It's got to be the one that God establishes. Uh, from among your brethren, and set his king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who's not your brother. So there he's making the point that uh, uh, well, the first thing we saw is that there will be a future king. That was God's plan for Israel. The second thing that we've seen is that the king would be someone whom Yahweh cho- chose, not one they chose. Third, the king would not be a foreigner. He had to be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He had to be an Israelite. Fourth thing we see is in the next couple of verses. In verse 16, he shall not multiply horses for himself. In other words, he's not in the position to accrue wealth for himself. And how many times have we seen people elected to public office and for example, there was a president and his wife who left office in 2000, and according to her testimony, they were pretty poor. And now they are worth, some people estimate their values between 50 and $100 million. How in the world can we have politicians who don't get paid that much make that kind of money and, and come up with that kind of wealth? There are other congressmen I've heard people comment on in, in Texas, both Republicans and Democrats, that when they left to go to Washington, they were just worth maybe three or $400,000, and most of that was the value of their home. And after they've served two or three terms in Congress, they're worth 4 or $5 million. Now, how in the world does that happen? See, this is what God is warning them against in in verse 16, he's not to multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Verse 17, neither shall he multiply wives for himself. That was an ancient Near Eastern custom among kings to show how powerful they were and to build alliances with other countries. Of course, Solomon violated both verse 16 and verse 17. So they... Uh, He's violating these, these principles. So the fifth thing we learn is that the king's not to multiply wives from foreigners lest he be led into idolatry. So we see that the, the purpose here is to protect him uh, from, from being led away from God. 
lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. Verse 18 gets the next principle. The king is, um, uh, the king is to write out a copy of the law and he's to be wit, uh, w- that's to be witnessed by the priests and the Levites. Verse 18, it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book. Every day he had to get up and he had to write out his own copy of the Torah so that he could then read it the rest of his life. You know, that'd be a good exercise for teenagers starting about the age of 10 when they're preteens is to start writing their own copy of the Bible. That will keep them busy for the next 10 years. Hand write out an entire copy of the Bible, and then they have to read it. It it will increase their penmanship. It will have all kinds of additional benefits. So that's something that, that can be part of a homeschool plan. So the king's to write out a copy of the law, witnessed by the priests and the Levites. And then lastly, verse 19, it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes. So it emphasizes that the king is under the authority of the word of God. I only know of one candidate for president who makes an issue out of his uh, regular study of the word of God and his dependence upon the word of God. And that is important. Uh, it's not necessary, I don't think, in this country for someone to be a believer, to be president. Uh, we don't have that kind of a litmus test, but they better understand those divine institutions, and they better support them 100%. Otherwise, they will just continue to lead us into disaster and to uh, a nation that looks about as as blessed as Israel did at the beginning of the book of Samuel. Now, next time we're going to come back and we're going to continue to develop the introduction just a little bit more. Uh, then we're going to get into uh, the, the uh, chapter itself. Father, thank you for the opportunity to study these things uh, tonight, to reflect upon your plan and purpose, how your grace turned Israel around, and that only your grace could do that. Your grace can turn this nation around. And, and beyond that, we recognize that it's your grace, your sufficient grace that is able to turn our lives around. And it's only your grace that can do that. As we face numerous personal challenges and problems and obstacles from our own sin nature, the only thing that can give us genuine victory over those areas is a dependence upon your word and the Holy Spirit and your grace. And, Father, we pray that we might have the courage and the strength of our convictions to depend upon you in this kind of radical way so that we may realize the benefits of your grace in our life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.